starting this morning again in the book of James. We are going to be in James chapter 1, starting at verse 9. But in order to start there, by way of introduction, do not laugh at me. Do <laughs> Let's be honest for just a moment. I won't name names. Karen, did you come in here this morning not expecting an introduction? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the Eastern mind is much more comfortable with paradox than we are here in the Western world. And James is going to start creating paradoxical statements that are also true statements. But on the surface, they sound paradoxical. Now, we here in the West, we like Aristotelian logic. We like A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. We like that because that's clean and logical and we can understand it. We can comprehend it. But the Bible keeps saying things like, if you want everlasting life, die. And you go, well, that, that seems bad. Or you get by giving. That, that's not the way the world thinks. The world thinks you get rich by accumulating wealth to yourself and then hoarding it all to yourself. The Bible says things like, if you want the chief seat, take the low seat. 
So the Bible repeatedly says paradoxical things. Yes, Marilyn? Did you get that right? If you want the cheap seat, you take the low seat? Yes. Chief. Chief. Chief seat. Did you think I said take the cheap seat by taking the low seat? No, if you want the cheap seats, sit in the balcony. <laughs> if you want the chief seat, with an F, chief seat, <laughs> then you take the low seat. The Bible is full of those kind of paradoxes, and James is going to launch into a couple of paradoxes here that also, just because we're accustomed to the way that the biblical paradoxes work, we kind of read by it and say, okay, that makes sense to us in a biblical sort of way. It doesn't necessarily fit with our Aristotelian logic, but it does fit in God's grand logic because, after all, the chiefest, with an F, the chiefest of all paradoxes is God saves sinners. Now, logical Aristotelian religion would say, and so much of modern Christianity does say, God saves good people. Good people go to heaven. So work hard, be a good person, and you can achieve your own righteousness, and God will accept you on the basis of your own earned righteousness. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that Jesus came to save sinners, of whom, Paul then says, I am the cheapest. <laughs> Wow, that played right in, didn't it? I mean, really. You have to appreciate when things go that right. Yeah, he saw himself as the chiefest of sinners, and he saw Christ as the savior of sinners, which is just paradoxical. So with that mindset, with that paradoxical kind of mindset, James can say, starting at verse 9, but let the brother of humble circumstances, let the poor man, let the man who doesn't have much glory in his high position. Well, that is immediately paradoxical. What is the high position that a poor man with no substance can glory in? Move forward to chapter 2 for just a moment because I think James explains it in chapter 2 verse 5. Almost like as he was writing, he made the first statement, let the poor man glory, and then he realized, well, I ought to clarify that a bit. So in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Okay, so now we understand what the poor man can glory in because he does have this high estate. He is loved by God. He is given faith by God. He is given the promise and guarantee of eternal life by God. Therefore, he can glory in his high estate even though he's poor in this world. Then James states it the opposite way in verse 10 and says, and let the rich man Glory in his humiliation. Okay, rich men, by and large, in this world are not humiliated. Rich men are propped up. Rich men are praised. 
Rich men are glorified in this world. James says, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Why? Well, now that we understand the first half of of the sentence, verse 9, we can understand the second half of the sentence, verse 10. We understand that if God loves the rich man, he's going to humble him. He's going to bring him into a state where he understands that God gave him his riches and that he should be generous, gracious, kind with his riches, and therefore he's being humbled. And if God has taken the time with everything that God has to do, if God has taken the time to spend on that rich man to humble him, then he ought to glory in that fact. But then James says something really interesting. Before we get to the really interesting thing, think of that as coming attractions. We'll get to the really interesting thing in just a moment. Do me a favor, Tom. Look up Luke 14, 11, because Jesus also draws this kind of contrast between the rich and the poor, and that both of them should humble themselves before God, be trained up by God. Luke 14, 11, what does that say? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a standard paradox right from the lips of Jesus. All those who humble themselves are going to be exalted. All those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled, because that's the way that God works. He's not going to allow anybody to stand before him and glory in their own actions, their own works, their own self-made madness. God is not a respecter of persons, and therefore God is going to humble the proud. We see that over and over again, and he's going to exalt the ones that are humble before him. So James is saying something here in verses 9 and 10 that completely comports with what Jesus has said. Sermon on the Mount type language comes ringing out through James's writing here. But the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, we really see an example of what I've been saying for the last few weeks, that James is very influenced by the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Because now James is going to say something that could have come easily from Solomon. It would have fit nicely into the Ecclesiastes. James says, because like flowering grass, he, the rich man, will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Just so that you can understand where James gets that kind of thinking, that kind of what's-it-all-worth kind of language, that sense of the futility of gaining riches and making something of yourself, and that language of the sun rising, the scorching wind coming up, grass withering, and that men are like, Flowers that fall off and fade away and the beauty of their appearance is destroyed. He's getting that directly from the wisdom literature. He's getting that right from Solomon. So we're going to spend the next three and a half hours reading the book of Ecclesiastes. No. But we're going to read a big portion of the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn there 
Keep your finger there in James. We may be back. But we're going to start right at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. And there are portions of the first three chapters, well, even four chapters, that I would like to look at. But when you find the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, keep your finger there and turn to the end of it. Because as you're reading through Ecclesiastes, you can get this sense. <laughs> I, know, I know, you don't have enough fingers, right? I keep saying keep your finger places. As you're reading through Ecclesiastes, you can get the sense that the author, traditionally considered to be Solomon, that the author of the book is just kind of depressed, that he's just reached the point of saying everything is vanity. Everything is futile. What's the point? He's even going to say, I tried the way of the Epicurean. He doesn't use the word Epicurean. I've tried the, the way of the Stoic. I've tried to satiate my body with everything since nothing matters. Eat, drink, be merry. I've had plenty of riches. I've had plenty of women. I've, I've had everything in this life that a man could ask to satiate my sinful desires. And it all came out vanity. And I've tried to buffer my body, and I've tried to, to limit what I take in, and I've tried, and it's just vanity. It all comes down to vanity. So before you get too depressed by what he writes in the early part of the book, look at chapter 12, verse 13, and just read the conclusion, and you'll understand. His conclusion is, and he even says it's his conclusion, verse 13, chapter 12, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, everything, whether it is good or evil. That's his conclusion. After trying every mode of life available, every form of physical life available, one of the wisest, richest men ever to live on the planet. He had endless possibilities in front of him. He experimented with them all, and he came to the conclusion that everything in this earthly life, everything in this worldly mortal life is ultimately vanity because even the richest men, even the wisest men die and go to the dust like your average dog, like your average cattle we all end up ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And so all of the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of money and wisdom and stuff, he says, goes to the next person after you. All that stuff that seems so important in this lifetime, the next person gets it, and he even asks the question, and who knows if he's going to be a fool? Maybe the next man after that gets all your stuff is a fool, and all of your wisdom, riches, and accumulation go to him. So what's the point? That's what Ecclesiastes is about. So his conclusion is, enjoy your life, enjoy the work you have to do, and follow the commandments of God, because that is the only thing that gives this life purpose. Follow and worship God, Fear God, keep his commands. That's the only thing that makes sense in the Solomonic mind after having accomplished and experimented with everything. So he puts it this way. Back to chapter 1. 
Ecclesiastes, by the way, is the English word that we use. The, the Hebrew word at the root of all this just means the preacher. And so the NASB translates the first verse as this is what the preacher says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. That is a typical Hebrew idiomatic phrase, kind of like king of kings and lord of lords. It's emphasis. He's saying, what I'm about to describe to you is not just vain. It is the vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's meant for emphasis. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All, everything is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. So the preacher begins by saying, whether it's the planets in their circular orbits, whether it's the change of seasons, whether it's the wind blowing, whether it's the rivers flowing to the sea, everything just has this continuous cycle over and over again. The sun came up today. The sun came up yesterday. The sun came up a week ago. The sun will come up tomorrow. The sun... It's just everything in this repetitive pattern, and so he can conclude that everything just seems wearisome, and there's nothing new under the sun, because everything that has been will be again. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur, for there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So he says the people who are alive now don't remember the stuff that has already happened. I won't comment on history being taught in schools these days or the liberal agenda whereby we're erasing our past and pulling down statues. I, I'd like to talk about that, but I'll, I'll assume you all know. That'll give you some context for what's being said here. He says people don't even remember the stuff that happened in the past, and there's really nothing new happening in this world. It's just repetitions of the same cycles over and over. And what about the stuff that's about to come? We think, well, that's in the future. That's new. And he says, when that happens, the people that are there then aren't going to remember that that happened after it's happened. People are just going to go through their lives not paying attention and not remembering. And so everything is vanity. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He just said the collection and the exploration of wisdom becomes a grievous task. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than them all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does that accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine, while my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly, until I could see what good there is, for the sons of men to do under the heaven in the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all the activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all of it was vanity and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what will a man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. He says, wisdom is better than folly. And I'm a wise man and I've seen foolish men, but they both go down to the grave. They both go down to the dust. The wise man's eyes are in his head. The fool walks in darkness. And yet 
I know that one fate befalls them both. So then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as there's no lasting remembrance of the fool. And as much as in the coming days, everything will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, well, this too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get for all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind is not at rest, so this too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God, without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. At that point, at chapter 3, having viewed everything there is in life, having come to the conclusion that everything is vanity, he narrows it down to God. It's just enjoy eating, enjoy your labors, enjoy what God has set in front of you, because what enjoyment is there in this life without God? And that's a question I've often asked. I don't know how people navigate this lifetime. I don't know how people can look at the events of this world without God and understand it and comprehend it. If your worldview is an atheistic worldview, if your worldview is there is no God or God is there but he doesn't care, how can you possibly make sense of this world? And so Solomon's conclusion is, Enjoy whatever God has put in front of you because without God there is no enjoyment to any of it because without God everything that a man finds to do is ultimately vain 
because you don't take any of it with you and you leave it to the next generation of people and who knows if they'll do the right thing with it or foolish things with it. And so everything that you strive to do in this lifetime is ultimately not remembered. Everybody goes down to the dust. Everybody goes to the grave and therefore life itself is completely vain if there weren't God in the midst of it. So then he says, starting at chapter 3, he now launches into one of the greatest statements of God's sovereignty. That the reason that everything has value if God is in it is because God is in charge of absolutely everything. And he starts out by saying that nothing in God's universe happens randomly. That God has purpose for everything and he has appointed the exact time for everything. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Every event under heaven. Every event. So how much randomness is there? None. None. Which are the events that God's not in charge of? None. None. Everything that happens in this lifetime is under God's jurisdiction. And that's where life finds purpose so he says there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven there's a time to give birth and a time to die a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal a time to tear down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep, and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart, and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. And yet so that the man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. That's a paradoxical statement. The Eastern mind, as I keep on saying, is comfortable with these kinds of paradoxes. But this is where James is getting this idea of the futility of life, the futility of rich men. They fade away like the grass and they're gone. He's getting it from the Solomonic philosophy and writing and thinking about the wisdom of this world that culminates in the wisdom of God. Because God has set in the hearts of men eternity. The only reason we can think about 
heavenly things, eternal things, glorious things. The only reason we can do that is because God set it in our hearts to be able to think about such things. And yet, Solomon says in his brilliance, he says, and yet God doesn't explain everything. God doesn't tell us everything. And yet he sets eternity in our heart. He has made everything appropriate in its time. That's where meaning in this life comes from. The appropriateness of everything is found in the fact that God set it in place. And he has also set eternity in our hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There are still mysteries that we can't figure out. Why? Why before the foundation of the world? Why when God was choosing before men even existed, before he'd even created the planets or the universe, why would God decide to write names in the Lamb's book of life? Why, for heaven's sake, would he put Josiah's name in it? And then why would he decide that the only way to create this person, Josiah, who hasn't been here yet, who's not going to be here for thousands and thousands of years, because to everything there's a time and a purpose under heaven, that he knows Josiah is going to be here, he's going to live for a certain number of years, the time to be born and the time to die. And then he's going to set eternity in Josiah's heart so that Josiah is interested in the things of God. And then God decides before the beginning of everything that he's going to send his son into his own creation. And he's going to kill his son in the place of Josiah so that Josiah can be with God to see God's glory. Figure that out. Sort that one out and explain it to me. What was going through God's mind when he decided that? And then he knew that Josiah was going to be exactly like Josiah is. He knew Josiah was going to be a sinner. He knew that he was going to be a human being in desperate need of a redeemer. And yet he would place the eternity in Josiah's heart so that Josiah would seek a redeemer. God did all that. God knew all that. From the beginning all the way to the end, God's got it figured out. And every purpose under heaven has a time and a place and a decree. And God knows all that. And so Solomon could write, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor because it is a gift from God. That's where you find the value of your labor. The value of your labor isn't in the labor itself and isn't in the thing you create because it's going to be left behind when you go to the dust just like the cattle do. And who knows whether the next person is going to be smart or stupid. You don't know what they're going to do with your stuff. You don't know if they're going to spend your stuff wildly and lose what they've got. You don't know any of that. And so his sense, his conclusion is just enjoy and rejoice the good that you do in this lifetime. Because if you start pondering and thinking about the fact that you go to the dust and somebody else gets your stuff, it'll drive you to vanity. It'll drive you crazy. Instead, just enjoy what's in front of you because everything that's in front of you has a time and a purpose. And it all comes from God. So just enjoy it. I tell folks constantly, people who feel guilty because they have a bit more than somebody else might have. 
I say do good with it and enjoy it. God's been good to you. God's been kind to you. Now show that kindness to other people. Be gracious with what God has let you have, but don't walk around feeling guilty about the fact that God has let you have it. You have some joy in your life? Be happy. Joy is tough to find. If you've got some joy happening, enjoy it. That's, that's kind of a, uh, a bit repetitive, isn't it? If you have joy, enjoy it. But whatever God has given you in this lifetime, enjoy it. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor because it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Notice the contrast. I don't want you to miss it. Everything that men do ultimately fades away. It's all going to burn. We can't even make a paint that will last eight good winters. <laughs> everything we make, we can't make picnic tables that don't decay and get full of mold and the rain rains on them and after a couple of summers you got to get rid of the picnic table. We can't make a car that doesn't rust and we ultimately have to go get a new car. Everything fades away. When we moved in here, we had chairs, gray chairs. Some of the gray chairs are still in the front room. Eventually, new chairs. Why? Because chairs fade away. Everything in this lifetime fades away. I'm cleaning out my closet right now getting rid of clothes and stuff and things. I was surprised at the amount of junk I put at the curb this week for the, for the garbage men to come take away. Unfortunately, they took it. Just junk, just stuff. Things that at some point in my life I accumulated. Things that I thought, I need this. That now ended up in the garbage pile. Because everything men do fades away. But by contrast, verse 14 says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. God is permanent. There's nothing to add to it, which means that everything God does is complete. There's nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it, which I really find fascinating because it means that God is economical. It means that everything God does has a permanent purpose and he never did anything or created anything where he went, oh, too much. Instead, everything that God does is just enough. Enough to satisfy him and enough to get us to our appointed destiny and nothing that God has ever done needs to have something taken away from it or added to it. For God has so worked that way that men would fear him. That's the word for reverence. God has worked that way in his sovereignty, given everything in appointed time, created everything that he's created with permanence, despite the fact that everything men create disappear and get rusty and get moldy and don't last. God has permanence and he has created it that way so that men will recognize his holiness, his permanence, his otherness, and our inability to be like him, so that we will fear him. And that which has already been, and that which will be, has already been, for God seeks 
what has passed by. That's Solomon's way of saying God knows what's coming, and what's coming has already passed by him. I heard an example one time. I don't know if this example will help. But the preacher said, it's like God watches all of time like a parade. And as it goes by, we think the stuff that we've already seen is the stuff that's gone. That's the stuff that has already passed. But God knows what's still coming in the parade. He still knows what's coming down the pike. He still knows what's going to occur on planet Earth because from his perspective, he sees the whole parade. From our perspective, we only see the band or the float that's right in front of us right now. Once it's 500 feet down the road, we don't see it anymore. We're looking at something else, which we think is the next thing. But the stuff that's gone past, gone. It's already gone. It's done. It's history. Well, God doesn't see it that way. The things that we think are already gone are still present to him because he sees the whole thing. And the things that we don't know are coming yet. There's a magnificent float coming down the road. We haven't seen it yet, but it's coming. It's in the staging area. It's about to join the parade. We're going to see it in about a half hour. God already knows. He's already seen it because he's seen the whole parade of human history as one big unit. And so Solomon says... He demands, he expects, he can command the things that were and the things that are. For that which is has already been. And that which will be has already been. Okay, there's a tough one. There's a big paradox. That which will be has already been. For God seeks what has already passed by. The things that we think are history, the things that we think are gone and done with, God is still there. God is still participant in that. Okay, that, that would explode our brain if we got a hold of that. Einstein and people like him, I don't know how many people there were like him, tried to figure it out. Tried to figure out time and distance and relativity and how does that all work. Only God knows all that. He's placed eternity in our hearts, but he's not prone to explain everything that constitutes his godness to us. But he's above time he's outside of time and he can demand the past as equal as he can command the future because he sees it all as one big creation of his that which is has already been and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by furthermore I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So he concludes that it's true in this world, wickedness happens where righteousness ought to happen. He agrees that evil is in this world. But where does he find purpose? In the fact that God will judge it all. And in God's judgment there is now purpose to everything. And he returns to the beginning of what we would call chapter 3. And says that there is a time for every matter and every deed that is done. I said to myself concerning the sons of men. God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. 
God has tested men. God has proven to men that they're just a creation, that they live a little while and then they die and then they go to the dust. God is proving that he is God, that he is other, that he is permanent, and that we are completely dependent on him. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beasts descends downward to the earth? I'll, I'll state it another way. Do dogs go to heaven? It's a question my daughters ask me frequently. Do cats go to heaven? I, I always say, well, I know when we come back with Christ, he's on a horse. We know there are beasts in heaven. Some indescribable beasts. So Solomon asked that same question. How do we know? Who knows? Who knows that the breath of beasts goes into the earth and the ruach, the spirit of man, rises upward? Who can make that distinction? We know they all die. We all know they breathe the same air. And then he says, this is just all up to God. He has to decide these things. And I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in all his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? I'm not going to be here a week after I die. Whatever happens a week after my death, I'm not going to know. And I guarantee you I'm not going to care. And I guarantee that I will be happier than everybody who's still here. And so Solomon says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You can't change the things you can't change. This world, this life is all vanity. Find its purpose in God. Fear God. Recognize God in everything. And that will bring you joy in the things that God has provided for you in this lifetime. That's where he concludes it. And then he goes into the evils of oppression, very much like James is going to do. So hold on to that. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. Go back to the book of James. Part of the reason that I read all that is just so you could see what's influencing James's thinking. James is very influenced by the wisdom literature, and he assumes that his reading audience is also familiar with it. And so he says these almost cryptic short wisdom pieces and he just assumes that his audience is going to understand it, agree with it, and go with it. But to us and our Aristotelian Western minds, we don't get it. We have to be taught the wisdom literature in order to understand the mindset that James is coming from. So this morning you got three whole chapters of Ecclesiastes. I know. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. The very fact that God has entered him and put eternity into his heart. The very fact that God himself took the time to draw him out of all the people on the planet. To give purpose to his life. To introduce himself and to help him to understand the things of God. Means that 
the stuff of this life and his ability to accumulate stuff doesn't matter because the stuff of this life, as we just read, is left behind. It's left to somebody else. And you don't know if they're going to be wise or a fool with it. So it's not about the stuff you accumulate in this life. It's about whether God introduces himself to you and places eternity in your heart. And if he does that for you, even if you're of humble circumstances, you can then glory in the high position that God has called you out to. That God has determined to place you in his own glory forever. To make you joint heir with Christ in everything that God has planned for Christ. To glorify Christ, you're going to be joint heir with that. That's a very high position. It doesn't get higher than that. So does it really matter how much stuff you accumulate here? The stuff you accumulate here doesn't last. And so, even if you're of humble circumstances, but you know the things of God, then you can glory in your high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass... And its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Vanity of vanities. Do you see how well it fits? I threw in the vanity of vanities part. But I want you to see how well the James thinking fits with the Solomonic thinking. Blessed then. What's a blessed man? What's a spiritually prosperous man? Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, in other words, once he's passed the test, once he's gone through the trial and learned what he needs to learn, then he will receive a crown of life, that crown sitting on the head of the person who has eternal life, that's his point. It's not a literal crown. You're not going to show up and, and God says, let's place a crown on your head because you're the one that needs to be glorified. Instead, he's saying that the crown of eternal life is going to be set to your head, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's where blessing is. That's where the blessing comes from. Now, also... If that sounds familiar, how often did Jesus say during the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are, blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Time and time again, Jesus said, blessed are. James picks it up. The same thinking, blessed are these type of people, men who persevere under trial. Now, you might recall, as we began the book of James, it started with, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So James now has returned to that subject because James is schizophrenic, because James likes to introduce stuff and then go to something else and then go, oh, yeah, now that thing I was saying before, let me say something else about it. So you have to kind of read the book of James like puzzle pieces and put the things together, but he's already said that you should consider it all joy when you encounter these various trials, knowing that the testing, there's that same concept, 
when you're approved, when you've passed the test, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let the endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's the reason that you can joy when you encounter these various trials. So now he returns to that idea in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has passed the test, once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Next week, we will start at let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. But wait, because even Abram was tempted by God. So we we have to talk about that. Is James contradicting the earlier books? Or is he saying something much more understandable about the way God works? And do we need to pay attention to context? There, I I even gave you the answer right there. You can go home now and pay attention to context and you're going to get it right. But I hope you're understanding this whole exercise this morning out of Ecclesiastes was not only a prime opportunity to just look into the wisdom literature and see how genuinely wise it is, but it is also a way to see the influences that have caused James to write the things he has said so that you can better understand the Jamesian mind. Jamesian. I use the word Jamesian. James, you can use that later. You can explain yourself online as encountering the Jamesian mind. Are there questions? Yes. When you use the phrase, our Aristotelian religion, our Aristotelian mindset, can you expand on what does that mean? The logic of Aristotle. Aristotle began developing the rules of logical debate and argumentation, and they've been handed down through Greek philosophy into our modern Western culture so that even if you go to college or even high school today, you can take classes in logic, which I did, where you learn things like logical fallacies, you know, how to create logical succession of thought, and paradoxes don't fit into any of those logical categories. So some people become so logically minded and stick to those rules so fastidiously that they're uncomfortable with what the Bible does say because the Bible's comfortable with paradox. So every time I say the word Aristotelian, I just mean the logic that came from Aristotle and has been handed down and developed and grown into this thing that we call logic now. There are rules, as any of our debaters here will tell you, the speech and debate club will tell you that there are rules, logical rules, that you have to follow in debate. And those logical rules come from someplace. They came originally from the philosophy and the logic of Aristotle, hence Aristotelian. Make sense? Okay. You got that education for free this morning, so look there. Everybody use the word Aristotelian in a sentence later today. You'll be happy you did. Just, just yank it out and impress your friends, and they'll all say, you're so smart. You said, so just do that. Did you enjoy that bit of Ecclesiastes? Yes. yes. 
It's good, isn't it? Because no matter where you look in the Bible, God's sovereignty shines through. And this lifetime has no purpose without the knowledge of God. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with that. All right? Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.